0: Hey and welcome back to the podcast. Today's guest is somebody I've wanted to talk with for a while now, former State Senator Nina Turner. Currently, Turner's a candidate in a special election in Ohio's 11th congressional district, which spans Cuyahoga and Summit counties. The seat's vacant because Representative Marsha Fudge was selected to serve as Secretary of Housing and Urban Development in the Biden administration. Senator Turner, as you may know, is not only a former state senator, but a former Cleveland City Council member and a candidate for Secretary of State. More recently, she served as president of the progressive organization Our Revolution and as the co-chair for Senator Bernie Sanders' 2020 presidential run. Obviously, Turner's well-known as a strong supporter of Medicare for All, but the senator and I get into a wide range of topics into our conversation. If it doesn't sound presumptuous of me to say so, I think it was one of the better conversations we've had on the show, in large part because Senator Turner's such a great conversationalist. I think you're going to enjoy it. As always, before turning to our conversation, I'd like to ask you, if you like this episode of Prognosis Ohio, please help us make more by becoming a Patreon for just $3 a month. This is our second to last episode for a while. I'm going to be taking some time away from the show to rework and retool it from the ground up. We're planning on a big launch in August, but we're going to need your support to take the show to the next level. We use whatever support we receive to pay for the tools, recording platforms, hosting, things like that that we need to keep spotlighting community voices and important issues here in Ohio. To support the show, please go to patreon.com/prognosisohio. That's patreon.com/prognosisohio and thanks. Okay, now to my conversation with Senator Nina Turner.
1: Senator Nina Turner, thanks so much for joining us, and welcome to Prognosis Ohio.
2: It's a pleasure to be with you, Dan.
1: So before we turn to policy today, uh, I want to start by talking about a piece of your life experience, uh, which you've talked about a bunch. Um, You know, healthcare is personal for you. Yes. And and, and, and it is for, I think, many, if not all of our listeners as well. In an email you sent out on Mother's Day that I received, uh, you write, Compassion is one of the things I remember and cherish most about my mama. She was a nurse's aide and gave so much of herself to those in pain. Through struggle, through challenges, and through some of the hardest times, she demonstrated so much love for our family and for our community. I lost my mom when she was just 42 and saw firsthand how many policies have no compassion for poor or working poor families. So, Senator, can you tell me a little bit about how your family and your personal experience have shaped your thinking about healthcare and kind of framed it?
2: Yeah, Dan, Mother's Day is bittersweet for me. I'm a mom myself. So the other side of that equation is I celebrate Mm -hmm. the blessing that my son is. And then on the other side of that, wishing my mother could be by my side as well and losing her that young, certainly left a mark on me and my siblings. I was in my early 20s and there's seven of us and I'm the oldest of those seven children and my baby sister was 12 and we're all two years apart. So that was really a very hard time for my family and I in the, in the early 90s. And to see, you know, my mother go into a coma and then, you know, die and just reflecting on, she was on Medicaid at the time. And mm-hmm. we have a system in this country, Dan, as you know, that treat people differently when you have that Medicaid card. Yeah, it's a, it's yeah. a mark. And one, one of the reasons why I do support Medicare for all is because of my mother's history, because of her life, because of her struggle, her health care struggles, at times being underinsured, being among the working poor, not having all the insurance that she needed and then have to have that be supplemented by the government throughout her entire life. So it is vitally important. There are other families just like this that I'm not the only one yeah. that has a unique yeah. story to tell in that regard, but it definitely breaks my heart. And I, I use my mother's memory also to fuel me to continue to fight for these issues that will help marginalize and depressed and and just people who are among the poor, the working poor and the barely middle class, who lives are just cast to the side far too often in our society.
1: Yeah. And if I understand correctly, your mother had un- years of untreated hypertension.
2: She did. Um, Yes.
1: Yeah. and But is that something that you hear about folks as you've been out on the campaign trail, uh, that, that particular issue? Very
2: much so. Healthcare is at the top of the mind of most people and also jobs. Those are the two things that I hear about the most, whether it's virtually as we try to navigate and tame COVID or face to face. And it's certainly something that I've heard over the years as I've been blessed to travel this country right. and be one of the champions for Medicare for all and other issues that change people's material conditions.
1: So you, you mentioned me- Medicare for All, and most listeners will know you for your advocacy for Medicare for All uh, with the Sanders campaign, with our revolution, and just in general yes. as, as, as Senator Nina Turner. But there's also more to healthcare, as you know, and more to health than formal access to healthcare services and drugs, um, even though those are big pieces of the puzzle. So I guess when, when, when you think about the Ohio 11th, uh, you know, what are some of the deeper challenges residents face uh, that healthcare access alone can't fix? I mean, this is in a way a loaded question because you, you 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 always make that movement from healthcare to housing to the minimum wage and you know those kinds of conversations. But what kind of things do you see specifically?
2: Poverty. I mean, one of the major, the largest city in the district is uh, Cleveland, Ohio, and it's the number one it's been labeled as the poorest city in, in the country. So poverty is all consuming. And we have uh, many children in the district that live in poverty right now. Mm-hmm. And the impact that that has, that if a family cannot sustain itself by having that living wage, I mean, you brought up the $15 an hour minimum wage, and we know that is already the floor, it's not the ceiling. Economists are saying right. that $24, we're closer to $24 and some change. If the minimum wage had kept up with production or inflation so yeah jobs affordable housing we know that uh, evictions are about to amp up here and mm. we are going we already have a homelessness crisis in the united states right now as it stands and this is going to further exacerbate that crisis so all of the quality of life issues then they they are they, they are fabrics that are sewn together you can't have one without the other you need Healthcare, care. You need a good job. You need to live in a viable community. You need to have somewhere to live that is viable. Right. All of those things go together. There is an intersectionality in all that in life. Period. Uh, that we face. Yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, it's almost impossible to be healthy if you're poor. That's right.
2: Right. Poverty kills. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Poverty literally kills. And when I think about my mom, although she she certainly had an aneurysm, and to your point you know, years and years of not being able to manage her blood pressure, not having access to her medications. Looking at you, pharmaceutical companies, you know, (laughs) that make hand money hand over fist at other people's vulnerabilities and also death. I mean, we must change not just, as you said, that the healthcare system, Uh, the pharmaceutical companies are, have to be held accountable to the over, you know, they over what what they charge us for uh, pr- prescription drugs is definitely untenable in the United States of America. We got to do something about that. But yes, being poor is really hard. And in some cases, it could be a death sentence. And if it doesn't kill you right away, it will kill you slowly. There's one stat I want to share with you that there's a 23 year difference in the expectancy, life expectancy between a resident in Cleveland, the greater Cleveland area that lives in the Buckeye uh, university circle area compared to someone that lives in Shaker Heights. 23-year yeah. difference just because you were born one place. And these locations are about two miles apart, Dan.
1: Right. We talk about life expectancy sometimes, the the U.S. versus, you know, name your country, Ecuador, yes. right? But actually the real story is you can drive, I mean, my community here in the Columbus area, I'm in Grandview. I can go 20 minutes south on my bike. Yes, that's a tw- that's a bike. Twenty minutes, and and life expectancy will drop about twenty years too. Yeah. It's all over
2: our state. Yes, it is, and it doesn't have to be this way because poverty is a po- is a policy choice. We can make different choices.
1: So you know, in your district, um, like many districts, but you know, one of the things we talk about on the show is Ohio has some fabulous and high rated healthcare institutions, right? But right outside their doors, you have entrenched poverty. That's right. And you know, and that's true in the Ohio 11th as well. So I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about how you think about that divide, and, and maybe um, we've already touched on it a little bit. But also, do you think we need to ask more of, of these healthcare institutions, these hospitals, especially the nonprofit ones that aren't paying much, by the way, of taxes?
2: Absolutely, because nonprofit does not mean you're not making any profit. Let's put that out there.
1: They, they got lots of revenue. Lots
2: <laughs> of revenue. Yes, we need to ask more. And I have the courage to ask for more, which is you know, why I am doing the work that I am doing, why I am running for Congress, is to ask more, not only of our government, but more of the uh, companies, whether they're for profit or nonprofit, that make an enormous amount of money uh, from the communities that they're in without having to have some type of a social equity contract mm-hmm. with that community.
1: Yeah, and, and and that work with the hospital community benefit, I mean, that's a federal thing, that's right. right? And uh, that's, that's an IRS code, but it's also an enforcement. Have you given any thought, if, if you're elected, um, to the kind of committees you'd be really pushing to get on and, and, and what roles specifically you would want to um, you know immediately jump into.
2: That is exactly right. I'm glad you brought that up Dan. Yes for IRS purposes, uh, hospitals have to have a plan that they present to be able to have that tax status and there's a difference between presenting the paperwork and actually doing the deed. Right. and we need more people to be doers of good deeds in in our society and that includes organizations institutions whether they're for profit or not for profit.
1: Yeah. So so you you'd want to get involved in that kind of Oh, work.
2: very much so. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. calling me. I don't think I have a choice. I can't. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so let's just talk a little bit about, you know, the the, the 11th the 11th uh, district here um as I mentioned, I mean, you, you talk about poverty, you talk about minimum wages, you talk about housing. Um, do you think that folks are aware of the connections that, like, you know, there's only so much we can move the needle in health outcomes if we don't get involved on that level? And, you know, when you look around, you also talk about environmental justice. And I was curious, like, could you just give a little, little bit of a snapshot of some of the unique things going on in the Ohio 11th that, you know, f- that bring this home for people, that illustrate... Environmental justice, housing, the ways in which we're just stuck.
2: Yeah, lead comes first to mind, you know, in, mm-hmm. in Cleveland as we looked at Flint and their poisoned water. And I believe it was Rutgers uh, University that did a study that showed that there were 3,000 other areas in our country that had higher lead levels than even Flint. Flint certainly was the canary in the coal mine, and that was done mm-hmm. on purpose to. Mm-hmm. A community that was seen as throwaway, as disposable. And there is a caste and a class component to what a Republican governor did and just the indifference to those residents. But what the Flint story. Did for us in this country is it reminded us of the unfinished work that we must do to ensure that people minimally dance. I mean, this is not asking too much, not reaching too high, to make sure that people have clean water, clean air, and clean food. And what we have seen throughout this country when we intersect racial. Uh, Environmental racism or the injustices, even in the environment. Black children get asthma at higher rates. You see, you want to talk about environment. There are more fast food restaurants in poorer communities, more gas stations on every corner in poorer Mm -hmm. communities, less trees in poorer communities. You understand where I'm going with this, Dan? This stuff is everything. And it is deliberate, it is by design. And so, because These variables were created by design. Guess what? On the other side of that, we can undo it by policy on purpose, by design, and it must be done.
1: I mean, yeah, that was one of the things. One of the things that came out of the Flint discussion was, you know, here in Columbus, you know, we talk about lead as well, and you know, it's a huge issue in Cleveland. Yes, we don't even know where these service lines are, though, right? We we can't even. There isn't even a map. Tell we have. There's a lot of work that we have to unearth to even find these things.
2: That's exactly. Meanwhile,
1: in DC. President Biden's having these ridiculous conversations with Republicans about what is infrastructure. Right. Right. As though lead service lines are not somehow absolutely essential to infrastructure.
2: They are in the water lines, the sewer lines. I mean, all, a lot of our, all of our major cities for that, or cities, you know, I'm talking about the exurbs too. The infrastructure mm-hmm. is old, it's deteriorating. And, you know, my grandmother used to talk about not throwing good money after bad, In that case, what I mean by that is that we knew that all of our infrastructure, whether it's our pipes, our uh, buildings, the, the housing stock in these cities, those things need to be maintained. They have a shelf life. And we're acting brand new as if we didn't know that, especially larger infrastructure. And that is the best example that what you and I are talking about right now is the best example of what gov- government is supposed to do. Government is designed for us to do collectively what we cannot do as individuals. You and I can't go out and build our own water lines. I don't know about you, Dan. Maybe you can. I can't. Build my own water line, <laughs> ensure that clean water is coming through the pipes, maintain those pipes, uh, make sure that sewage and drinking water do not cross pollinate. These are the things, and that is why we have to reimagine what it means to have a social contract in the United States of America about what people deserve. And I want to see right. the residents of this. Of the of, of this country, you know, of the 11th congressional district, the state in this nation demand more because they deserve better than what they're getting.
1: So I reached out to my friend Mallory, who lives in the 11th, and and I asked her, I said, yeah, I'm talking to Senator Turner. I wonder, what should I ask her about? And we were talking about housing a little bit. um, And one of the questions that came up there was, what do you do about developers? I mean, talk about a social contract question, right? You have demands being made from developers, but then you just have the need for safe, secure housing, affordable housing. How do you, as a leader, as a, a Congress member? have that conversation and work across that line of these powerful developers who seem to short-circuit a lot of these efforts, uh, you know, from the beginning.
2: Well, I'm glad you and Mallory are having those kinds of conversations. We need to attach strings to taxpayers' dollars. It's just as simple Mm -hmm. as that. You want a tax break. you, You want... There, there's a demand here. There's, there's something that you must accomplish, a community benefits agreement that must be adhered to if you want us to subsidize your private venture. That's it. I mean, it's just as simple as that. Easy, easy enough. Let's do it. And, and, and see what that's simple. What is less simple or more complicated is big money in politics yeah. where whether it's developers, you know, these, these, Special interests, if you will, can buy politicians and we must have real campaign finance reform in the United States of America. I mean, you talk about climate chaos. There's another type of chaos, too. There's one that's happening to Mother Earth, but there's also the climate chaos that happens in politics because special interests that are greedy can buy off politicians and then leave the rest of us vulnerable to what matters the most to them and not necessarily have to provide any type of service to the community by which they are getting that subsidy. They are being subsidized by the taxpayers. And so why not put some strings attached to that money so that we can have a greater good. I do believe that in business, there is a way to do well and to do good. Those things don't have to be mutually exclusive, that somebody can make a profit and also do good for the community or the communities by which they are reaping that benefits and their workers let's not forget their workers i've
1: seen that in my community too just you know the the willingness to attach strings the willingness to get the most out of public money and to ask for things that you that you should be able to ask for when you're when you're giving public money it's about political will that's it right and they don't they don't want to say that right they want to say it's about incentives and creating a business climate and all this stuff but actually you just got to tell them that's what the the the, the price of uh,
2: punching your tickets. That's right. That's that's what that's what it is. Just lay down the rules of engagement. We need more elected officials who have intestinal fortitude. And since this is a family program, then I'm, I will just leave it at that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if this is a family program. We've never we've never had that conversation before. But yeah. You know. <laughs> Let's talk about health disparities for a moment. We've had a lot of conversations on this show. Uh, we've talked with Leader Sykes about this. We've talked with legislators around the state. We've talked with experts of various sorts. The state still won't declare uh, racism a public health crisis, although many communities have, and uh, the CDC has and, fe- and other federal entities. you know, these these health disparities, uh, especially disparities along the lines of race and and and, um, and poverty. There's some progress, not a lot to hang your head on, you know, really, but uh, a lot of people talking about this. So, uh, how do you? What role can you play in working between the federal and the local here, the federal and the state? A lot of people, I mean, obviously leadership matters in general. It does, but you know, the Congress members uh, work on it from a certain perspective.
2: While I am happy to see uh, bodies, whether they're local, regional, or state you know past these uh healthcare is or racism is a healthcare crisis we got resolutions. resolutions right, right. Yeah. we got to put some money behind that stuff you know those declarations yeah. are empty unless they have some money behind them so we know that i'm really feeling a duh moment coming here duh No stuff. I want to say the other word. We know this. So now what are we going to do about it? Because we know. And so some of the things that we can do, Dan, is both communal from a communal perspective and also from a policy perspective. Communities must come together across ethnicities and race and all other kinds of identities to have the deep seated conversations about racism, the impacts of racism and how it threads through. All of the factors that we so socioeconomic, political environment, all the things you and I are talking about right now, those are irrefutable facts that, for example, with covid crisis, black folks are dying at higher rates. They are hospitalized at higher rates. Those are facts. The black mother maternal death rate higher than our white sisters. In the United States, right now in the 21st century, black babies die at higher rates. Right now in the 21st yep. century, goes on and on and on. Black people lost 50% of their wealth during the Great Recession. 41% mm-hmm. of black businesses have gone out of business so far during this COVID pandemic. I mean, you name it. It's there. And then our other sisters and brothers of color, too. I mean, if you are of color, if you are black, if you are brown, indigenous and then all poor people, you are catching hell. But there's a disproportionate hell catching That's going on because of race. So we have to start with having those real conversations. And then the what are we going to do about it? And all levels of government should be dedicating resources to deal with this conundrum, to root it out, to eradicate it. So that five years from now, 10 years from now, a generation from now, we're not having these same conversations about what to do with this race. The, the disparities in in our all of our systems as it relates to race money. Again, this is poverty is a policy decision. The fact that the black communities, the, the gap, the income and wealth gap is still very wide. That's a policy decision, too. And the federal government can do something about it. And you remember the GI Bill. You know, even the New Deal, as much as I admire President FDR for many things, for stepping in and reminding this country of who we are during one of the, uh, you know, the, the, the Great Depression. However, when we comb through the layers of the, of, the, of, the, of the New Deal, we see that there is racism in that New Deal, too. In other words, those the bounty did not come to the black community to the same level it did to our white sisters and brothers. Same thing with the GI Bill. Those are all policy decisions. So through public policy, we can turn this around. And I do, let me add, for good measure, we need to have a, a real conversation about reparations. And I'm glad to see a bill that Congressman John Conyers, who is deceased right now, he had been working on since the 80s uh, to, to, to have the, the Congress study this issue and make some recommendations. I, for one, don't believe we need a study, but it's a great start. The study <laughs> is ongoing. I mean, people, we, we, get, we have real life examples right now. We've been studying this for 400 years. Uh, Dan, so it's time to get to work.
1: Well, some listeners might not know you're also a professor of history, right? Yes. I mean, so, you know, I mean, the idea that we need to study, um, you know, all you got to do is, re- it's called reading. That's it.
2: And I admire, because I know exactly what Congressman Conyers was trying to do, you know, put it in discussion, lay it out there in a way that he could probably get most of his colleagues to agree. I get it. But yeah, there's there's an ongoing uh, testing on this right now. We have real experimentation and it's been going before this the inception of this country. So yeah, we got 400 years worth of research on uh, anti-blackness, white supremacy and racism in the United States of America. We need to do something about it through policy. <laughs>
1: So WKYC, uh, I was reading an article, uh, characterized this primary as yet another battle between the establishment and progressive wings of the Democratic Party. Um, You know, they love that uh, (laughs) sports framing or something, you know, war, whatever the metaphor is there. Yes. but what does this framing mean for healthcare specifically? I mean, you know, just to mention, I mean, so this is a race to fill a seat that's been vacated by Representative Marsha Fudge, who's now the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, which is awesome. It is, uh, and there's a legacy there. I mean, she supported Medicare. She for all, did. Oh no,
2: she know. did, Dan. And was part yeah. of the progressive caucus too. But go on, you, you got this.
1: Yeah, sure. So that's the legacy of the So what's at stake? I mean, do do you? Do you think of it in the ways that I've just sort of uh, put them, you know, that this is establishment versus progressive? Or is there something else going on here about what this community needs, knowing the community, uh, talking to the right people and definitely not the wrong people?
2: Yeah. When it is trivialized, the way that you laid out the way that the media, because there has to be this competition, you know, if it bleeds, it leads so to speak. And so to say that this is establishment versus progressive really centers two ideologies versus centering the people. And so I am running this race to center the people who I want to serve in the 11th Congressional District and our entire state by extension. I mean, one million Ohioans have lost their health care, their employer sponsored health care so far, so far and climate. And and it's growing just as overall the, the people in this country have lost their health care. So we go to almost a 100 million people nationally who are either uninsured or underinsured. So they should be centered here not uh two ideologies but what is in the best interest of the people who you are trying to serve or in the ca- or my case who i am trying to serve to me that's how i prefer to center so whether it's jobs whether it's healthcare whether it's uh, making sure that we have a Green New Deal that puts people back to work. I want to center them and change their material conditions. That is why I'm running, I, and that is why I have the courage to ask for more. That's really what this whole conversation is about, Dan, asking for more. Yeah. Medicare for all is just one example of that. It is the morally right thing to do, and it's also the economically right thing to do, because healthcare costs are out of control. Businesses are... are Businesses can't even handle uh, this because the cost of it is so much. Why not? Let's handle this together like we do for 65 year olds and older. Let's enhance it. You know, put some 21st century on it so that it covers hearing aids. A lot of our elders don't get their hearing aids and vision and dental. And let's expand this. To everybody in this country, oh my God, what a wonderful place it would be to have universal health care in the United States of America, and the opportunities and options that are before people if we do something like this. I think are boundless. So,
1: yeah, if you, if you want to center people, you got to talk to people too. That's it. I guess I want to ask you a final question. You know. Um, so Medicare for all, I mean, it's the conventional wisdom is it's, it's mostly off the table in DC right now with current, the current legislative climate. I don't know if we buy that or not, or how we move that, but what can you do? And there are others, obviously in the you know, Democrats um, who are, 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 are Championing this, uh, so you wouldn't be alone, right? But you know, we also have the situation where just based on redistricting alone, the Democrats could lose the House in the next election. It seems like so. uh, How do you come in there and then be part of these conversations? Are are there pieces you can bite off? Is there a way to nudge? Um, How how do you think about? getting us on that road.
2: Yeah, I'm already a part of those discussions. That is why I've garnered so much uh, support from members who are in Congress right now. And the Congressional Progressive Mm -hmm. Caucus comes to mind. And you know, uh, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal has been the lead on Medicare for All in the House of Representatives Mm -hmm. with Senator Sanders leading that charge in the senate and so i am going to continue to be a part of those discussions with people who are already called my colleagues we cannot relent on this we need to ask for what we want and not budge on medicare for all now along the way will some great things happen Absolutely, you know. One thing I want to share with you, Dan, is a a bill that uh, Congressman Rokana is pushing. It was pushed in the last uh, c- Congress, and he's going to reintroduce it. and It's called the State Based Universal Health Care Act of 2019. And what that would do, it would allow states to apply for waivers with the federal government that would le- let states pool federal resources to be used towards a single payer system in those states. And that c- that c- uh, combining uh, monies in that way would allow those states to have that type of system while the federal government tries to figure out what it wants to be when it grows up. (laughs) That is a positive sign because there are bills right now pending. There's a bill pending in California right now. There is a bill pending in New York. And when we look at other nations that have universal health care and Canada comes first to mind, It started in a Providence first, Saskatchewan first before it was nationalized. So I see those, you know, legislation like that as one opportunity to ultimately get us to Medicare for all. There are many things that you can kind of relent on and negotiate Medicare for all, I don't believe, is one of those things. Either we are going to lift up health care as a moral right in this country or we are not, because what we have right now, and many physicians have said this, we have sick care in the United States of America. We do not have health care. But if we adopt and get the courage to ask for more, and have Medicare for All a universal system in the United States of America, we could have a true healthcare system that is not commodified, that doesn't treat one set of people one way and another set of folks another way because the key word is for all, meaning everybody from the the wealthiest to the the struggling will have skin in the game with this system.
1: Well, One of the things I really appreciate about your campaign and that distinguishes your campaign from others is you have a lot of policy stuff on your website. I do. Right. I mean, you're, you're getting into policy conversations and, and I will say that, uh, that that, that's why we do this. That's why having a vibrant primary like this is important because you're laying out the differences. There are key differences between you and your, your, your opponents, but you are pressing these policy issues in very specific ways, which, which is really great. I wonder if you just want to say anything, uh, in terms of what, what next for the campaign and what, what, you know, you're looking forward to as we head towards, um, August for the primary.
2: Yes. Well, thank you for this, Dan. It is wonderful to join uh, you and your listeners. And, and uh, thank you for the great work that you're doing in this space to continue to push and talk about health care and all the professionals that tune in, too, and other people. I want to definitely lift up the National Nurses United. As you and I both yep. know, the nurses have been in the trenches for a very long time pushing this concept of universal health care in the United States of America. And it does take teamwork to make the dream work. For our campaign, the special election, as you noted, August the 3rd is Election Day, July the 7th though, early vote begins. And so we are out there by phone, by text. People can visit Ninaturner.com if they want to join in on this People Power campaign. What is our mission? Our mission is to change the material conditions of people in the 11th Congressional District, our great state, Dan, and the United States by extension, and have a vision that provides provision for the people. I'm running on that opportunity agenda, whether it's housing, jobs, a true COVID recovery, equity, you name it. Those are the things that I am standing for. And we need people to help us out in this race. So again, ninaturner.com. Early voting, July 7th, election day, August the 3rd.
1: We'll be uh, providing those links in, in our materials. And uh, Senator Turner, thanks so much for talking healthcare, talking health and for being out there, um, you know, making sure that, that these issues get some get some attention.
2: So was a pleasure to join you, Dan, and I hope to be able to join you again real soon.
1: Oh, hey, open invitation. <laughs> thanks so much.
2: Thank you.
0: My many thanks to Senator Nina Turner for joining me on the show. You can find links to learn about her campaign and her other work at prognosisohio.com and wcbe.org. I also want to give a shout out to Senator Turner's press secretary, Marissa Nahum, for helping to make the interview possible. This episode of Prognosis Ohio was hosted and produced by me, Dan Skinner. Please take a minute to subscribe to the show and follow us on Twitter at at PrognosisOhio and check out our website at PrognosisOhio.com, where you can listen to past episodes and find out how you can support the show. Stay tuned for our next episode, dropping in about two weeks, in which I talk with Amy Rowling-McGee and Zach Reed from the Health Policy Institute of Ohio about their 2021 Health Value Dashboard. I think it's going to be a great way to wrap up this season of episodes. Okay, that's it for now. Thanks for listening and be well.